Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 205. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetShop10Puppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Fooleman? We're back. We are back for an episode. I don't want to get anyone's hopes falsely up. We're not going to do the week-to-week stuff during the season. This is just, we feel like talking about something. But yeah, we do feel like talking about something, so we're here. Yes, so I, I think like going forward, you know, we're... We, we might, like, randomly pop up with, like, hey, there's a podcast now. It will not necessarily be on any regular schedule. Um, but, yeah, it might show up. And, you know, if, if people want to continue to listen to it, that's great. If no one wants to continue to listen to it, that's also fine. You know, it, it's yeah. – <laughs> we're, we're not doing this for the, for the money or the glory. We're doing it for the groupies, so they have to keep <laughs> listening. But everyone else, it's fine. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. If we were trying to build an audience for the first time this way, this would be the absolutely worst way to go about it. But we're sort of old and retired, so we're at the stage where we can just show up at, like, an award show and play the hits a little bit and see what we can do. Yeah, I, we were discussing this in the in the PPP Slack, and, like, Hardiv had a, a, I think, a line that stuck with me that I think made a lot of sense, which is, like, it's a terrible idea for a business, but this isn't a business. Exactly. Yeah. We have never made any money on this. So no, in, fa- in we fact, we're, like, we're out money because we have to pay for, like, SoundCloud Pro and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, our net loss, like, career on this podcast is, like, a couple hundred dollars. So. Yeah. Although, anyway. I, we were getting PPP stipends for some of that time. That's well. true. So, yeah. Um, they were not very much money, but that's okay. Yeah. Anyways, um, yeah, we're here to talk about the Leafs' off-season moves. So, without any further ado, we can probably just get right into it, and we'll probably start with the departures. Right, yeah. We'll work through the players who are no longer with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Starting with a much maligned forward, Alex Kerfoot, who signed for two years at three and a half million with the Arizona Coyotes. Well, I always thought Kerfoot was a bit better than he got credit for in Toronto. It was probably time. You know, he's a versatile defensive forward. He struggled to drive offense in Toronto. He did not finish well, as I think a lot of people recall from various chances that he did not put in the net. Um... On a team that probably needed to retool for more secondary scoring, and we're going to be talking about that as we go forward, it makes some sense to shuffle out a guy who's primarily used for sort of defensive winger situations. Like, he fit in the middle six and he was okay, but mostly it was that he was quiet and dependable. Right. Um, I would have been okay having him back if he took a slight pay cut from his former cap hit. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, he did not. He got the exact same cap hit. Uh, I don't think this deal is, like, egregious. It's also for Arizona, so I don't think any deal is really egregious for them. Like, what, are you going to accidentally spend $45 million more and they come up against the cap? (laughs) So who gives a shit, really? Um, But, yeah, I mean, his offensive play driving has, like, really fallen off in recent years. I thought the post-trade deadline fourth line of that included both him and Noel Achari was really quite wonderful. They kind of dominated in the regular season and I think had some moments in the in the playoffs too. Um, but I mean, that's a role that they're both overqualified for. If you're signing a guy for three and a half million, you're probably not saying, you know, the best selling point is probably not, oh, he was great in our fourth line. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with this. I think he'll hopefully enjoy Arizona and <laughs> the fact that he will not have like, you know, effigies of him burned in the street every time he misses a breakaway. Yeah, I feel for the guy. I can't help noticing when you go from arguably the most heated hockey media market. It's us or it's Montreal. Um, Montreal's a little smaller, but also probably more insane. But we're up there. And then you go to Arizona where it's like, 
A regular forward on the Arizona Coyotes is probably about as well-known in Arizona as I am. It's not that big a deal. So, yeah. He's also not um, very snarly or aggressive or physical or full of piss and or vinegar, which is something that the Leafs clearly sought out. And we'll talk about that in their free agent signings. But yeah, if you were looking for a character change, you can also see that taking shape. Yeah, Kerfoot's a very quiet player in, in yeah. basically every way for, for better and for worse. Like, a, you know, a good defensive winger who can't finish and doesn't mm-hmm. really hit um, is is going to be a player that, you know, doesn't necessarily lead to a lot of tangible stuff on a score sheet in yeah. either direction. Yeah, that's very fair. Um, Justin Hall, another guy that everyone seemed to get mad at very often. Three years at $3.4 million with the Detroit Red Wings. And I'd like to begin this segment with one of my favorite bits to do on this podcast, which was, we were right about a thing. (laughs) (laughs) I have to do this when I can, because I'm also wrong a lot. And so to preserve my ego, I have to brag. Justin Hall made more money on his extension, which I feel like a lot of people in Toronto didn't understand was going to happen, but it was pretty clearly going to. Yes, I mean... A tall, right-handed defenseman who can play on the PK and is not an obvious pylon, despite what many Leafs fans think, they're always going to be in pretty high demand. Um, I don't love this deal from a team perspective. Um, I wouldn't have signed it if I was Trilliving. But losing Hall does make our defense worse because he is like an average-ish player, probably a little bit below. And he showed the capability to play up into elevated roles when he played with a more capable partner, whether that was Jake Muzzin, you know, when Jake Muzzin's prime in Toronto. Um, played, you know, on, at some points with TJ Brody, at some points very briefly with uh, with Jake McCabe, uh, played with Mark Giordano in reasonable uh, roles. And yeah, I think I think Hall is a sort of average-ish guy, probably a little bit below that. And this is sort of what an average-ish guy at a position, uh, who plays a position of scarcity is going to get, right? Yeah. Um, I don't love this for <laughs> Detroit, as I said. Um, there, there are some questions about like, okay, you know, they're starting to build up, but are they building up anything besides kind of a 92-point team? Hard to say. Um, so, yeah, I think this is kind of good for Hall. Glad the Leafs didn't sign this deal. Uh, it was always going to be around what Hall was going to get. And, you know, the Leafs kind of did their offseason shopping to replace for uh, Justin Hall when they acquired Justin McCabe. Or, sorry, when they acquired Jake McCabe um, in many ways. I know, you know, McCabe's mostly a lefty and Hall is a righty. But I think, you know... McCabe is going to play a role in the in the top four going forward and in the PK so he'll replace a lot of what Hall's functionality was yeah I I you know I like Justin Hall fine he's a fifth defenseman uh he might be played on the second pairing alongside Jake Wallman who had a very nice year for the Detroit Red Wings um I assume they're paying him this because they expect him to be sort of a four five and We've seen Justin Hall function well as long as he's not the best guy on a second pairing. The other guy needs to be a rung above him for that to work, I think. Um, Maybe it'll work. Um, But yeah, perfectly fine with uh, Brad for living letting this go. Made a lot of sense. Michael Bunting. Uh, Bunting got paid, as you probably should have expected him to do, three years at $4.5 with the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, everyone was kind of sick of Bunting by the end of his time in Toronto, especially the refs. But he was a legitimately useful supporting offensive player, even as his ability to create power plays seemed to dry up down the stretch. He still drew penalties, but they seemed to be offsetting 
to my eye um, a little bit more. And also, he was sometimes the victim of plays where you would be like, a player without his reputation probably gets the call there. Mm-hmm. You know? But all of that said, he's a decent player, even if he's not as good as he looked playing alongside Austin Matthews. Right. He, he had, you know, probably the best situation of, of any player of his skill level over the last couple of years. You know, basically playing shotgun to a couple really, really strong forwards uh, and was almost always in that role until he, he got suspended in the playoffs and then was scratched for a game. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you're getting scratched in a playoff game, even coming off a suspension, that does feel like writing's on the wall for your time with that team. Yeah. Especially as a pending free agent. It, it is worth noting. I think that was a dumb decision from the Leafs. Mm-hmm. It, it was very much a, oh, we've won a few games in a row without him. Therefore, let's, you know, let's keep it going the way that coaches, coaches always do this. I sort of understand it. I understand it from the psychology of the room perspective. Mm-hmm. But the Leafs were better with Michael Bunting in the lineup, obviously. He's clearly, you know, a better than average NHL player. And, you know, he got a, got a good contract from a, a smart team, which suggests that they think he's, he's worth this as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was no real arrangement of the Leafs' left wing depth, which was not that great, where Michael Bunting was not one of the best couple of guys. So, yeah, um, bon voyage to Mr. Bunting. Um, Luke Shen. Three years at $2.75 million with the Nashville Predators, who seem to have made a bit of a cottage industry of poaching the Leafs' big, big deadline additions. Um, they did it again with another player we'll talk about in a bit. Um, Chen was better than we thought he was going to be. Yep, for sure. So I don't think he was this much better than we thought he was going to be. <laughs> no, I also <laughs> agree with that. Um I mean, I feel like whoever the Leafs GM is in the future needs to use this Luke Shen contract as an example for like all rentals, all guys looking to take short-term deals about the power of Toronto. And, you know, the Leafs actually have acquired three guys who fall under this umbrella who we'll talk about later. Um, Shen has been a third pair slash 70 guy for a while now. This wasn't just like, oh, his, you know, his time in Tampa was like that. Like he, that's just sort of who he's been, even in Vancouver when he was playing, you know, all the time. He was getting played in these weird bifurcated roles where he would be the, you know, partner to to Quinn. Uh, was it Quinn? Hughes? Yeah, I think it was to, to Quinn Hughes uh, mm-hmm. at sometimes. But then Hughes would play like way, way, way more minutes, right? And even in those situations where Shen is getting used kind of more heavily than than one might think, and pretty heavily when you look at who he's playing with in terms of his regular pairing, uh, the coaches are not under any delusions that oh this guy's actually like a top four guy it's like no they actually kind of used him like a sixth defenseman Mm. and now he's parlayed about 20 games of better than expected play in toronto into a contract with legit term that is basically what you would get if you were like a premium fifth defenseman Mm -hmm. right like this is not that much less than justin hall just got (laughs) yeah and you know Obviously, age is not automatic. You don't just die when you reach a certain number, but it takes its toll on everybody in time. He's going to be 34 in November. Like, I don't think that this is a good deal if you are conscious of every dollar counts, which Toronto is. Nashville apparently isn't because new GM Barry Trotz made some pretty wild decisions that uh, I won't get into here because that's for a Nashville segment. But, uh, yeah, he, he liquidated their top two centers in Duchesne and Johansson, or at least guys who could be top two centers. And he 
added these kind of character guys like Luke Shen. So I think with Luke Shen, you're certainly paying for his good citizenship, his inspirational demeanor, the fact that everybody seems to like him. And I don't think those things are worth nothing, but they're also not things you can afford to overpay a sixth defenseman for in his mid-30s if you're a cap team. Mm-hmm. Okay, Ryan O'Reilly, four years at four and a half million, again, to the Nashville Predators. That stings a bit. I, I, I'm a little sad that he went. Same, I would have signed him to this deal. Um, yeah. I know there is a bit of risk because, you know, it's a four-year contract for a guy on the on the wrong side of 30 who has shown some decline in recent years. But I think by most measures, O'Reilly is still a pretty competent uh, player. He struggled at times in the playoffs in a way that surprised me a little bit. He had moments in the first round, but the shift-to-shift play was not as strong as I wanted it to be. Um, and nonetheless, I still would have been really happy to keep him because I think he's just a very good player, and I trust like the larger sample of data that we that we have on him, both over the course of his career and even last year, even during his um, kind of quote unquote poor play in St. Louis. So much of it seemed to do with his teammates losing the ability to finish his passes, which you know for a guy who is offensively more of a playmaker than a shooter will make you look significantly worse in terms of your 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 raw statistics and the team's you know goals for diff- or yeah goals for percentage when you're on the ice. Um, so as this has been reported, O'Reilly didn't really want to return to Toronto. Yeah. It sounds like the Leafs would have given him, if not this, then probably something not far off it. Mm -hmm. And he was not super interested. We can only speculate as to why. Right. This is kind of like a Rorschach test for, for fans and media. It's very easy to claim that the reason he didn't want to come back is insert reason that happens to align with my priors. Yeah, You know, he, he. I think that the Leafs' core players are soft, and Ryan O'Reilly saw that. He's a Stanley Cup champion. He saw that they didn't have it, and he didn't want any part of it. Uh, I think yeah. Sheldon Keefe is terrible, and O'Reilly saw that Sheldon Keefe had no adjustments in the playoffs, and he didn't want—you know, he's a Stanley Cup winner. He didn't want anything to do with that. Or, yeah. you know, yeah, like, Ryan O'Reilly doesn't like Osmos, you know, and their shawarma <laughs> isn't nearly as good as the shawarma they have in Nashville. He didn't want anything to do with that. He's a Stanley Cup winner. <laughs> Stanley Cup's former standards. Uh, yeah, since we're just whistling Dixie at this point and guessing, I will note something that occurs to me as it might be a factor, and this could be entirely wrong. But on the Leafs, O'Reilly would have been like the fifth most important forward. He was, anyway, behind Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Tavares. In Nashville, he's going to be probably the second most important forward for the near future behind Philip Forsberg and is going to be certainly a very central figure. I would be stunned if they don't give him um, a letter. Um, obviously, their captaincy is locked up at the moment with Roman Yossi, but I think that he'll certainly be sporting an A before too long. So maybe that's a factor. Maybe it's any of a hundred other things. It is, you know, cold here in the winters for another thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so who knows? Uh, anyway, it's too bad. It was a pretty iffy center market. Um, in free agency anyway, like JT Comfer and Ryan O'Reilly were kind of the two top guys at center and then whatever Jonathan Taves is doing. So, and he's still unsigned, isn't he Taves? Yeah. Uh, so, so I don't know. And Comfer got a deal from Detroit where I'm like, that's a bit dicey. Like, it's a bit like the Andrew Kopp deal that they signed last year, isn't it? It's like, this guy's good, but Detroit is so... Okay, again, I, I will save this in case we do more of this in the future. We'll see. 
But Detroit is at a very fascinating team building thing where it's like they're clearly making moves that do make them better, but you keep seeing the ceiling kind of lower above them. And I'm like, I don't know if this actually ends with you as a Stanley Cup contender unless you get really lucky with another draft hit. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, but Ryan O'Reilly is gone. Um, John Tavares will be playing center for the foreseeable future, it looks like. Um, Nolachari, three years at $2 million with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Kyle Dubas, who uh, you may have heard left to run the Pittsburgh Penguins instead of the Toronto Maple Leafs after a whole bizarre couple of weeks in the spring. Um, I guess he really liked Achari because he acquired him once and he acquired him again. I liked Achari a lot. I got to tell you, even though this contract kind of violates some of my personal rules for what's a good idea. Um, three years at 2 million for a guy who's 31 and like probably a super fourth liner, as you said, a little dicey. It is. Yeah. The, uh... These fair deals for super fourth liners are always like, feels makes you feel a little bit nervous if from the team perspective, just because even super fourth liners are not that far away from eh fourth liners who are not that far away from out of the league. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's one of those things where it could easily work out if he keeps being what he has been. It's fine. It's just that could stop at any time, and he's in the age range where you start to see real decline. Um. However, you know, best of luck to him. Uh, The Penguins are also on a bit of a weird timeline. They want to do all they can immediately. And I think they are increasingly aware that the end is going to come in a couple of seasons. Mm -hmm. And And there's going to be hell to pay at that point. Yeah. So at that point, it's like you might as well. (laughs) They're sort of in the position of racking up debts with the knowledge that eventually they're going to declare bankruptcy anyway. So (laughs) we'll see. Um, Eric Gustafson. Now that we're on the other side of it, I still think that Eric Gustafson inclusion in the Rasmus Sandin deal was kind of pointless. I mean, it certainly I know didn't I don't end like up it. being pivotal. Uh, yeah. I guess they wanted some in- injury insurance for the playoffs. Gustafson himself, like, I think he was fine when he played in Toronto. Um, we're going to talk about the John Klingberg signing later, but... I think there's a decent argument that if you're going to sign John Klingberg for four million, you might as well just sign Eric Gustafson for less than a million. Um, but anyways, the Leafs didn't do that. Um, yeah. No real strong feelings on on Gustafson. He'll be fine with the Rangers. This is sort of how he's perceived around the league as like a seventh defenseman guy who jumps around. Yeah. He, uh, he had a honestly very good year in Washington, and it seems like teams are still not really believing of that, which is fair enough. He had a yeah. kind of long career prior to that of being rather undistinguished. Yeah, I'm with the teams on that, just to be clear. I think that the popular wisdom is right. I do not trust Eric Gustafson. However, as you've noted, he is somewhat in the same player mold as John Klingberg, and he's making 20% as much. So, hmm, we'll see. Um, Victor Mete signed one year at 775000 with the Philadelphia Flyers. This is your reminder that Victor Mete was in the Leafs organization last year, which you may well have forgotten. And finally, some other guys who went unsigned. Uh, Zach Aston-Reese, Wayne Simmons, Mac Hollowell, Philip Kroll. Uh, not a huge amount to discuss here. Zach Aston-Reese was kind of a nice fast-forward defenseman. Not a lot happened for either team while he was on the ice. If you think, hey, we needed to add some more scoring, we've had enough of these fourth-liners who don't do anything, maybe you were ready for him to go. 
Uh, Wayne Simmons, probably near retirement. Mac Hollowell, seems like a quadruple A player to me. Philip Crawl, I'm a little surprised. It wouldn't stun me if Crawl cobbles together like a fringe NHL career for a couple of years before he goes back to Europe, but maybe not. Um, okay, we're ready to move to extensions. David Kampf, four years at 2.4 million. Yeah, I, I, so I've softened on this deal since it was first announced. I really didn't like it when it was first announced. I was probably overreacting somewhat at that time. I still don't love it. There's a lot of risk associated with this contract. I also see more of the reasons as to why the Leafs went down this route. So one way it's useful to contextualize is to note that this is right in the range of the evolving hockey contract projections, mm-hmm. um, which means that essentially like uh, the evolving hockey contract projections, just to, just to you know give a bit of exposition to people who might not be as familiar, it's essentially an, uh, a model which tri- made by evolving hockey, as the name suggests, which tries to estimate what players will get um, in free agency. So it's very much trying to be predictive of how NHL GMs will value a player, not saying this player is worth X amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, camp coming in kind of right in the middle of that projection means that um, essentially this is kind of a market deal. And I don't really have any trouble believing that. This um, th- The reason I say this, by the way, uh, is that the evolving hockey uh, contract projection model has been quite accurate over the last few years. Like it, it does a very good job of tracking how NHL teams will actually value these sorts of players. Um, so anyways, I don't really disagree that this is a market contract for David Camp. I fully believe that if the Leafs did not sign this uh, or offer this extension to Camp, he would have gotten this or something close to this in free agency. Yeah. It's Very little doubt in my to... mind about that. Yeah. You can look at precedents for like Sean Corrali or Casey Sezikas, who were like super fourth liner types, um, who get this kind of cap hit. Like they both make 2.5 million against the cap. Sezikis actually has um, three years left to run on his, even though he's 32. So classically Lamorello right there. But uh, yeah, like this is actually not as disproportionate as it might feel. And if I'm being honest, as it felt to me initially. Um, Yeah. The thing that I come down to is like, is David Kampf a 3C in the right situation? The answer is probably not. Like Although the Leafs want that. use him as that. that, that that's do. the thing, right? Like, and they will it, probably have to do so again, at least until they make a, an in-season acquisition. Yes. Um, yeah, Camp has effectively been the Leafs' third-line center the last few years. You look at basically any metric, um, whether you look at minutes, whether you look at his usage, uh, mm-hmm. he is the third most important center on the team. Yeah. And when you look at it in that vein, you're like, okay, well, $2.5 million, $2.4 million for essentially a guy playing third-line center you know, you're not playing. You're not paying him premium fourth line money. You're actually paying him discount third line money. Yeah, um, and then you come around to okay, our third line center is a guy who's never hit thirty points in his career. Right, and and here's where things get like tricky. Camp um, has very polarized strengths and weaknesses, and as a result, requires kind of specific usage to actually get the most out of him and also kind of specific line mates to get the most out of him. We'll talk about that a bit more going forward. And that's a little bit awkward at times because you don't usually optimize your lineup for, you know, your third line center. Most of the time, 
the canonical third line center is just a versatile guy who can do a little bit of everything, can play up and down the lineup, can play, put him with whatever he does, you know, the same stuff regardless. He's consistent. Kampf is consistent, but he is consistent in both his strengths and his weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so ju- just to take a quick detour for a second uh, and level set on what David Kampf has been the last couple years. As I said, he's basically been the Leafs' third line center. He's played very tough minutes uh, in against you know, good opposing players, absolutely buried in an avalanche of defensive zone starts. Uh, so with all that context, he's actually produced relatively decent overall outputs for the Leafs when he's been on the ice. The Leafs have been right around 50% goals for percentage in each of the last two years when he's been on the ice. It was a little bit above that in 21-22 and a little bit below that in 22-23. And given what the Leafs are paying him and hit the usage that he gets and the fact that his competition is certainly harder uh, and more skilled than his average line mates. That seems pretty good. Like the Leafs have gotten value out of that. If you can get around, if you can break even in your third line center minutes where you're not paying that much money, you know, to the guy playing those minutes and you have stars up top who can hopefully win their minutes. And David camp helps make that happen uh, to some extent because he takes some burden off them to handle really tough opposing players. Then that's really great. Right, mm-hmm. so that this this you can see how you talk yourself into that, or how you talk yourself into camp as a quite important player because what the Leafs have accomplished with him on the ice in the last few years has undeniably been, you know, decent for what they need out of this position and especially for the cap hit that he commands. Mm-hmm. It does create some issues in that, as you said, camp has very little offensive upside. Like we can call a spade a spade; he's bad offensively. Mm-hmm. Even granted, like I believe he would produce more if he weren't used in this extreme scenario but it's also like the guys who earn more offensive usage do more than comp does so it's kind of a chicken and egg situation there Mm -hmm. but yeah he's not an offensively potent player right and this archetype of third line centers do exist jordan stall is a very prominent example current version of jordan stall not the prime jordan stall Mm -hmm. um Stahl had a stronger defensive impact than Camp did last year, and I think I would be a little bit more excited about this deal if Camp's 22-23 season was more like his 21-22 season in terms of his own defensive impact. Because mm-hmm. I mentioned the overall kind of goals for percentage for Camp being right around 50% last year, but it was really split between essentially the time he spent with a good transition winger and the time he did not spend with a good transition winger. When he right. was with Engball specifically, but even someone like Alex Kerfoot, he performed way better than what he did without them. He is kind of dependent on a guy next to him who can actually move the puck up and down the ice because otherwise he's just doing good defensive stuff, but he's always in his own defense zone because he has no ability to move the puck himself. Right. And I think that we saw that play out visually as well as in the statistics. Um, Engvall, for all his flaws, is a one-man transition. You know, he's big and rangy and he can skate. And, and he be- can move the puck forward for you. And before that, uh, Ilya Mikheyev was someone Same who, thing. who yeah. Kampf saw very strong results with for, I think, very similar reasons. Yeah. And so the question is, is someone going to be able to do that now, whether it's Max Domi or whether it's another player? Are we going to end up in a situation where Kampf doesn't have someone to move the puck out for him and the difficulties of his usage are exacerbated because he starts in the defensive zone and there's no one to get him out? Right. And then suddenly you can't guarantee that he's going to have a roughly break even overall, um, you know, on ice result. 
Yes. It's like the the classic problem with the Randy Carlyle era was, you know, like, okay, a lot of these shots are coming from the outside. If enough of them come from the outside, it doesn't matter. Some of them are going to go in. And so if David Kampf is spending his whole life in the offense, in the defensive zone, not just to start shifts, but because he can't seem to escape at a high rate, then sooner or later, he is going to get kind of swamped simply by the fact that there's too much time where the puck is too close to his net. Um, that would be my concern with it. That said, yeah, looking at this in a market context, again, you're seeing what centers are getting. You're seeing kind of imperfect options like JT Comfer at the top of the market. Ryan O'Reilly didn't want to come back. And then you have a remarkably thin center market after that. You know, these guys cost money. And we did see some centers move in some strange transactions like Johansson and Duchesne um, being disposed of by the Predators and becoming available um, for nothing but cap. But still, they took more cap than Conf uh, did. So, yeah, like he would have been very hard to replace. And you can also say in fairness to Brad for living, he has time to upgrade this in season when it might be easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ideal situation here, you know, the, the standard operating procedure for a team in the position of the Leafs is to churn your bottom six. Yeah. Uh, avoid having to pay them any more than is necessary. And this is especially relevant because we are paying our stars more than other teams are, fairly or unfairly. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, there's a missed opportunity here, right? The, the ideal thing for the Leafs to do is to find the next David Camp, mm-hmm. right? When the Leafs acquired David Camp the first time, neither of us thought he would be as a solid a uh, defensive third liner, effectively, or defensive third line center, as he has ended up being. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's not to say he's been absolutely amazing. Just that he's represented value for his cap hit. We thought, mm-hmm. okay, we're getting the shutdown guy in Chicago. This might blow up. <laughs> he might not only he might not be a third liner at all. He might just be like a fourth liner. Mm-hmm. In which case, like, uh, you know, it's whatever. But he played well above a station and gave the Leafs some very useful results in tough minutes that would have been hard to replace. Yeah, and that's a that's a real um, credit to the Leafs pro scouting that they were able to find that. Now, you want them to be able to keep doing that. But mm-hmm. it's obviously much easier for me to say, oh, find the next David Camp than for them to actually do it. And they might have thought, hey, there's no one else out there who we think we could get for cheap who could replace what David Camp did. I thought the Leafs sort of were eyeing Sam Lafferty for this particular position when they acquired him as like kind of maybe not to the same extent of David Camp in terms of being a true shutdown, like, oh, he's basically our third-line center guy, but mm-hmm. as a fourth-line center who can play up a little bit, um, who can handle some tougher minutes and ease the burden on the stars. It seems that either that wasn't the case or something has changed based on Lafferty's time in, in Toronto. Um, so, yeah, in either case, I, I see the logic behind what the Leafs have done here. At the same time, there is like just a large amount of risk in this because, yeah, we don't know how responsible Camp was for his overall decent results last year. The fact that he struggled so mightily without transition threats on his wing is notable. The Leafs are not exactly swimming in transition threats currently. Lafferty might be the best transition threat in the bottom six currently. And he's, yeah, at, yeah he's not amazing at it either. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's sort of a lot of imperfect options here. And... Camp is not that far away from, you know, just taking a step back and not being worth 
this money even if he was at his best because he's starting from a limited set like you know I've talked up the results that we got from camp as a, a de facto third line center but they were just break even and that's because camp has no offense mm-hmm. and you know if the offense takes an even further step back or if he's you know la- loses half a step of foot speed and he's a little bit worse defensively you know the, the seesaw starts tilting to one direction pretty quickly and yeah. that that can just be tricky to deal with and you have to take this risk for four years yeah. And, you know, people are going to say, look, the cap is supposed to go up starting next summer. There are hopes that in a couple of years, the cap is going to be about 10 million above what it is now, or if not that close to it. And that's true. The Leafs should be prioritizing being good now, which is also true. And so they can afford to take a bit of risk on the back end. But it's just worth noting that, like, look, this has some risk to it. If comp falls off to the point where he could be replaced by a minimum level guy then you're blowing probably in excess of 1.5 million against the cap, which may not seem like a ton, but like if you're bidding on a player and you can only offer them five and a half instead of seven a year, you probably lose the bid. Like (laughs) it's just the kind of thing that happens. Doesn't mean it's a mistake. Just we should recognize there are costs associated with this. Now, by all accounts, David Kampf is like insane with fitness, even in the context of NHL players, he's talked about as being fanatical about it. So, I'm willing to believe that he's going to maximize everything he can offer. But it's just, that's what we're looking at here. So yeah, I've kind of talked myself into this one as like, it's not perfect, but it might have been the best they could do in the circumstances. Yeah, I guess like in our notes, you described it as iffy but defensible. And I think that that is, is pretty accurate. I, the, the, the key is Camp basically has to be continued to be used like a third liner it during this contract or at least for the bulk of it right yeah you can you can convince yourself that okay paying two and a half million or 2.4 million to a guy to like a discount third liner who's getting us decent results there and -hmm. is helping the stars by you know making their load a little bit easier is is actually you know genuinely helpful if that stops being the case if he's unable to do that like if he starts putting up 45 percent goals for percentages yeah. Then there's 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 a problem. Uh, also worth noting, I think I touched on this before. Um, Camp's weird, uh, very polarized skill set also makes it hard to see how he fits in with a lot of other players that the Leafs have acquired who also happen to have very polarized skill sets. The Leafs' bottom six now is like not at all really full of interchangeable parts. It's full of these very like specific shapes, and it's not always clear how well they'll fit together. So I think mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of experimentation on the part of Keith. And a lot of like work that he'll have to do both to develop, you know, the weaknesses of some of these guys, but also to, you know, try a bunch of combinations and see what works and, and see what makes sense going forward. Yeah. And I want to be clear just before we even get into that. I'm not knocking Treliving for orienting more towards offense. I think that was a thing that was a good idea to do. And I've been recommending it for a while now. So yeah, like, by all means, let's do it. Let's try it. It's just there are going to be some clashes of styles. Maybe sometimes those work out way better than expected. Sometimes they don't. So we'll see. Right. At, at the area of the market where the Leafs are shopping, if you are getting offense, you're not getting you're not getting <laughs> offense with no drawbacks because those guys are yeah. making a lot more money than the Leafs can afford to pay them. Yeah, exactly. We're shopping in the bargain bin and we're looking, okay, how dented is this can kind of thing. <laughs> like, we'll see. Um, but that's a great time to talk about the acquisitions, which I think is what everyone's really excited to talk about. And we will begin with the first one. This was the first big uh, ad 
that was kind of announced for Bradshaw Living. It was rumored well before free agency actually opened. And so we had some time to probably overreact to it. Um, it was Ryan Reeves. Three years at $1.35 million. This is the only free agent he gave term to. So, yeah, I, I mean, not including Comp, who is an, an extension for a player who didn't hit the market. But yeah, so I guess the Trekulance era is back, baby. Reeves is 36 years old. He is one of the NHL's old school brawlers. He's generally considered one of the toughest guys in the NHL. I do not dispute that for a second. He actually only tied for 14th in the league in fighting majors last season with seven. But everyone he fought is dead now, so take that for what it's worth. Um, if you're having nightmares of the Colton Orr era, which is probably me dating myself a bit, but people my age might recall, or in McLaren, um, I will say this. Reeves has historically been a respectable fourth-line player. In the past. It has happened. Is he still that? Hmm... You but don't get, you you don't get to be like age 35, 36 and still in the NHL unless you have some some actual hockey playing ability mm-hmm. to your credit, right? Like, you know, the, the face punchers of eras, of eras past didn't make it this far because they were, you know, terrible even when they were in their prime. Reeves yeah. was a genuinely good fourth liner in his prime. Yeah, I'm thinking of someone like John Scott who was like objectively not really an NHL hockey player. Like, you know, huge and ferocious, but not actually capable. Reeves has at least done that. He had some great moments in his first couple of years with the Vegas Golden Knights. I'm going to be honest, I think a big reason he's still in the league is that he rode shotgun on their run to the finals in the first year, and he got some attention. Um, this is off remarked on by lots of people, but just as an aside, being widely known in a playoff run is great for your career prospects. Think of how good everyone thinks, like, say, Dennis Gurionov is based on one playoff run with the Dallas Stars or John Bergenheim got a contract out of it. You know, that sort of thing. Um, So yeah, Reeves has some bona fides. Um, He's been declining since 2017. Uh, Like the New York Rangers signed Reeves in 2021 because Tom Wilson punked their whole franchise and no one did anything. Um, He didn't achieve a whole lot and he was being healthy scratched at the start of last season before he got flipped to the Minnesota Wild, where he at least got back to playing on a regular basis. Uh, I'm going to note here that Minnesota got bounced in the first round. Yeah, um, just as an aside, everyone's like, oh, he's got the playoff, whatever. It's like, okay, there are teams with like similar pretensions to contending, like the Rangers and the Minnesota Wild, who had Reeves, and it didn't really seem to fix it for them, but okay, sure. Um, I think Reeves is probably a replacement level grinder at this point in everything but his willingness to absolutely beat the shit out of people. I have gotten a little bit annoyed at how thoroughly people seem to want to deny that the Leafs have ever had anyone who did that recently. Right? It's This is mind-boggling to me because, you know, you can just list off the names for one. Matt Martin is one. Yeah. Cal Clifford is one. Wayne Simmons is one. Um, and to be clear, I'm not reducing those guys to, oh, all they did was, was you know, punch people's faces. Uh, Simmons and Martin were respectable fourth liners for, for parts of, yeah. for, you know, most of their tenure in Toronto. Clifford was kind of a more marginal guy. But then even beyond that, the Leafs have acquired depth defensemen who also have no real uh, issues with dropping the gloves and being tough. Uh, Zach Bogosian, mm-hmm. Ilya Labushkin are a couple examples. Luke Shen last year. Yeah. And this is 
a weird thing where people are saying like, oh, you know, the Leafs have never had a guy like Ryan Reeves, a guy who's truly feared. And it's like, are we like erasing that, you know, all these guys were on the team? And in particular, like, are, I've seen people make this comparison, especially with like Wayne Simmons, because mm-hmm. he's the most recent one. Where it's like, well, yeah. the Leafs had Wayne Simmons and scratched him most of the time because he couldn't keep up. Right? Yeah. He, he wasn't worthy of a spot. And people said, oh, you know, Simmons is a fighter, but this is the fighter. It's, Simmons has been one of the toughest guys in the league since he got into it. Yeah, like, I, I'm like, I get that, like, Reeves has the er, reputation. He's considered the toughest guy in the league. Okay, Wayne Simmons will beat your ass. I am not interested in this idea that he was somehow not even on the same scale. I saw that guy fight. I saw him just pummel people. Wayne Simmons, I saw the stat, I think might have been Jeff yeah, who put this on Twitter, that like in his time with the Leafs, Simmons had like 15 fights and via like hockey fights voting has won 13 of them. Yeah, some right? of them decisively. I forget who it was, but one of the Canucks threw like an iffy hit. And that guy, I forget who it was, but to his credit, he stepped up to fight Simmons. But it was just, oh my God. Like it was one of the most lopsided fights I've ever seen. And I actually felt very bad for him. Because he just got pummeled. Anyway, like, again, not taking anything away from Reeves. No, not I at all. give you the benefit of the doubt, maybe even, and say, like, okay, yeah, he's a little bit above Simmons in that hierarchy. You will never convince me that Simmons wasn't close. Right. Like, I, I, I just, I, I'm just not here for this rewriting of history that Wayne fucking Simmons is not tough enough. Yeah. Do not, do not disrespect Scarborough in my presence like that. All yeah. right? I'm not hearing it. So... So, right. <laughs> so yeah, like, so to unless unless you really think that okay, having the you know heavyweight champ of the league makes like this huge difference. It's just not clear to me how this differs from any of the other truculent fourth liners the Leafs have acquired before, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, I think that's that's like the fundamental issue with this deal. I really don't want to belabor this deal too much because, um, you know, I I, I said this at the time that the Leafs. First day of free agency was like a little bit rough in some ways, because it included this Ryan Reeves contract. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, all the deals that they signed in the first day of free agency, we'll get to the rest of them, would be completely um, washed out it by the delta between Austin Matthews in twenty one twenty two and Austin Matthews in twenty two twenty three. Right, like <laughs> that's how sort of inconsequential they are in some respect. Like the variation of our star players is more important than this contract but you know it is a new acquisition we are going to discuss it yeah you know what if i want to make the case for this signing i will say okay people who play with reeves seem to like him he is by all accounts like a character guy very good in the locker room we've heard this sort of thing before but if you think that those actually have a positive impact on how austin matthews plays the game then sure like you can get to a rationale for it um I don't know if I buy it because I have been sold this bill of goods a lot of times. Yes. You know, I mean, we, Matt we Martin did, was the first one, but yeah. We just named four or five guys yeah. and, and, and none of them really seem to make an impact. Like to the extent that you think the Leafs are not winning because they are not tough, mm-hmm. that has to do with toughness in the top end of their lineup, not in the bottom end. Yeah. And like, if it's the same guys, I don't know that the issue is really altered that much by the supporting cast, by a guy who's probably going to play eight minutes a night, you know? I assume they signed him with the expectation of playing him regularly because yeah, it, I would it think would seem so. weird if they didn't. But they're not going to be relying on him to do much more than fourth line duty, I would expect, barring injuries or something like that. But yeah, um, I would just note on a contract note, Reeves is above the age of 35 
and there are rules that apply to 35 plus contracts, but they don't seem to apply here because the contract is apparently flat value. To be to be clear, these are rules specifically about um, buyouts and retirement. I think. Yeah, I think if you if yeah. you demote him to the AHL, regardless of the contract structure, it still stays on the books. I believe. Yeah, except minus a certain amount. So, like, you do get a bit of relief. Right, right. You, you, you get the relief that you just get from, from waiving anyone, basically. Yeah. The, the, so, just short aside, the thing about the 35-plus contracts is they were designed to prevent teams from signing guys who are older to these term deals that dove at the end, where everyone kind of knows that they're going to retire out of them. Like, the expectation is, okay, he's never actually going to play that third or fourth year. So we can lower the AAV with it by putting sort of a back diving value at the end. And we have a handshake deal that he's not going to play it. Um, in the case of the Reeves deal, the value is the same every year. He gets 1.35 million rain or shine. So those rules don't apply to it based on what I've read of the CBA. Um, at the same time, it also means that Reeves has less of an incentive to retire out of it. So like he's more likely to stick around for the three years because this might be his last chance in his life to make $1.35 million in a year. That's a lot of money. Um, so, you know, we can expect to see him around for a while. Uh, I do have some questions as to where you do play him. Mm -hmm. If you are going to play him, he has no business being played above a fourth line. Okay, so is the fourth line like Reeves, Holmberg, and Lafferty? Yeah. Like, I, I'm pretty skeptical of that one. Again, there's lots of time to experiment um, or to make further additions or to do whatever else. But, like, it seems like it might be a bit of a weird mix of skills. <laughs> right. Again, he also makes zero sense with David Camp because you're playing David Camp in this role where he's playing above his station, right? Where he mm -hmm. plays against top-end-ish players or at least better players than his line mates are. You don't really want Ryan Reeves, you know, being on a shutdown line. Yeah. So I will say this. I'm more worried about like him actually being used in a situation where it's an issue than I am about the dollar amount, which is like, okay, it's a little bit too much, but right. maybe you're paying for something that's off ice. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess the last thing I'll say about this deal, there's essentially no upside to this deal, <laughs> right? The best case scenario is that he performs at like a league min level when he's on the ice and provides some benefit to the rest of the roster in terms of toughness. Um, again, skeptical about the latter benefit because we've had versions of this guy before. Uh, but yeah, I, I, the reality is, you know, I'm banging this drum a lot, but the Leafs have star contracts that are very, very hefty. And we know one of them already is inefficient in Tavares. And that's not a value judgment on Tavares. We knew that when we signed him that, you know, this year and the last few years of his deal, he's not going to be worth 11 million. We went into that with eyes wide open. The trade-off didn't end up working because we had very little success in the first few years of his deal. Um, mm -hmm. It is what it is. But that means we need contract efficiency elsewhere, right? The reality is, if you are a cap team, um, if you get if you sign players who are worth exactly what their cap hits are, you will be league average or thereabouts. Maybe a little bit above because not every team is a cap team. Yeah. But to be a contender, you need to find some guys who you know, as anti-laborist as sounds, you are paying less than they are worth. Mm -hmm. And this is a contract signing where there is essentially zero chance that that is the case. Yeah. 
it's not hugely damaging, but it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that's kind of where we're at on it. Hopefully he gives some sort of spiritual benefit that makes everything okay. Um, next up, we had a pretty interesting signing, I guess I would call it. John Klingberg, one year at $4.15 million. Um, Kind of like Reeves, this is a much better signing if you still think it's 2018. Um, he turns 31 in August, so he's not ancient, and he is a right-handed defenseman, so he's automatically 30% more special. Uh, he used to be an elite puck-moving defenseman for the Dallas Stars. He was never considered a shutdown guy, probably correctly, and certainly wouldn't be considered one now, but he was good at what he did, and he was a legit, offensively skewed, top-pairing-ish guy, as recently as 2018-19. Um, after that, Klingberg's defense starts to show some cracks. The team eased off his responsibility in favor of Miro Heiskanen, who sort of gradually took over and became the 1D on the Stars. Um, Klingberg's defensive frailties became more pronounced, and this is in a period where he was not being used as a shutdown kind of guy. Um, eventually, they let him walk in free agency last summer, uh, and he waited for a term contract, which never came. Then he took a very clear sign me so that you can trade me later deal with the Anaheim Ducks for one year at $7 million. And he had a really brutal year. <laughs> it was tough. Right. It's sort of hilarious to me and telling that every single source that I can find about John Klingberg, whether it's uh, stats people, whether it's more old school, I only watch the games types, mm -hmm. whether it's absolutely anyone on the spectrum of I've watched some amount of Anaheim Ducks hockey last year. They basically all unanimously agree. No, Klingberg sucked. He was horrible last yeah. year. No one has been done the, oh, you know, he actually wasn't that bad. No, everyone's like, no, he was terrible. <laughs> you can usually find someone who's willing to do it too. But in this case, it was pronounced. Now I will say, um, the Ducks were complete dog shit last season. Remember, they finished last in the standings and in goals against. And this is in a year where Chicago and Arizona, like, openly lit their teams on fire. So, like, they were very, very bad. Um, but, yeah, he, like, he looked awful any way you measure it. I remember, you know, we were talking about people who watched Eric Duhacek, who's, like, the classic old-school hockey reporter, and he watches the Ducks. But he was straight up, like, it was not working. And I was kind of hoping he would give me something to hang my hat on, because he's not a numbers guy, but he was, like... Klingberg is not <laughs> a strong defenseman at this point in his career. So anyway, uh, the eventual deadline trade did come, and they flipped him to the Minnesota Wild, which also didn't make me feel a ton better, because the, the Wild are a good defensive team. Mm -hmm. And he didn't look great with them either. No, even relative to other Wild defensemen, he surrendered many, many chances against. Yeah. So to feel good about this signing you mostly have to kind of hand wave away his whole last season. Um, I will allow, there is one sort of encouraging thing if you care about this. He put up 33 points in 67 games, so about one every two, and 10 goals. So he is a legit shooting threat from the back end and has been for long enough that it's, it's real. Listeners of this podcast will know I do not like shooting defensemen as a rule. I don't think that that's like an archetype that actually pays out that well. In the modern NHL. However, Klingberg has contributed to strong offenses in the past. Right. So uh, th there's two things I want to make note of with Klingberg. When he was at his peak, 
he was a genuinely great offensive defenseman. Some offensive defensemen cannibalize their team's offense, right? They make more of the offense run through them, but the offense when they're on the ice isn't anything special. Klimberg was not one of those guys. He did have a high level of involvement himself, of course, Mm -hmm. Um, especially with how frequently he was used in transition to skate the puck out of his own zone and also, you know, jump into the rush and be active in terms of making the final pass or taking the final shot. But the team's offense when he was on the ice in his prime was genuinely just good. He had a very positive impact on it. Mm -hmm. That has waned in recent years. And at the same time, his defensive frailties have only grown. You have to go back probably four or five seasons at this point to find a season where he was even close to league average defensively in terms of uh, XG RAPM. So basically how many, what's the level and quality of chances that he gives up relative to league average, you know, as best as we can isolated to to him alone. Mm -hmm. That's really not good. And it coincides with people's eye test of him and it coincides with coaches opinions of him, especially in Dallas where his shutdown responsibilities really waned as they started to lean on Miro Heiskanen more, mm-hmm. who, who is very, very good defensively. Right. So all of these data points are kind of leaning in one direction, that Klingberg's defense has really, truly fallen off. Um, the shot maps that Micah McCurdy, uh, in Effective Math um, on Twitter and, and at HockeyViz.com, uh, ha- have put up regarding his defensive impacts are truly horrific. It's just a giant pile of shots right in front of the crease. Mm-hmm. Klingberg just seems to have a very, very difficult time executing in his own zone at this point. And I'm not super familiar with his career trajectory and history. I don't know if there was like an injury that like specifically led him to, for example, lose a lot of mobility, lose a lot of strength or something like that. But for whatever reason, the results have not been good for three to four years now. Yeah. And he has missed time in several seasons um, since 2018. Um, Yeah. Look, you can see a clear downward trend in his career, you know, being reduced to like a one-year deal with the Ducks, maybe that outweighed his market, then being traded for a fourth and a, frankly, very fringe prospect, and then subsequently taking this deal. The question is, has the decline in his market value now outpaced the decline in his play? And it's not impossible for me to Imagine him getting into a better situation, looking better than he did last year. In fact, I would be stunned if he didn't look better defensively than he did on the docks, just because there's almost no floor to how bad he looked there. Um, and maybe that works out with more value. When you give a player $4.15 million, even for one year, I think it has to indicate that you at least hope he might be a second-pair guy. Right. And Klingberg's stature in the league dictates that yeah, he's probably going to at least start on the Leafs' second pair. Uh, again, this also creates some issues. I've talked about this a fair bit. The Leafs now have these really polarized guys. And it's just, if you play Riley on one pair and Klingberg on another, there's kind of always a place for opposing forwards to act uh, to attack. Mm-hmm. And that's not amazing to me. That So that part worries me. If the Leafs are willing to cut bait on Klingberg, if it's not working, I'm okay with this. I think it's... I don't think this is a very high, uh, a very good bet. Uh, for I don't like Klingberg paying high in the lineup. There is at least some upside here. Like there is maybe a 1% chance or something like that, that Klingberg just like, you know, wakes up and feels like it's 2018 again 
and mm-hmm. he's suddenly just a top pair defenseman, that would be great. I don't really anticipate that happening. Yeah. No, I mean, that seems optimistic uh, at best. But yeah, like you can, you can talk yourself into this by hand-waving away his most recent season and then by saying, okay, Jake McCabe will be the defensive zone conscience. Um, Klingberg will be the puck mover to compensate for some weaknesses that McCabe has. And it'll be one of those classic DFD-OFD pairings where they balance each other out. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but I, one thing I want to say, you, you said that you can talk yourself into this if you hand wave Klingberg's most recent year away. I think yeah. you need to hand wave more than that. Because mm, yeah. he hasn't had a really strong <laughs> year in quite a while. Yeah, I, let me put it this way. I can talk myself into it being okay if I just completely ignore the most recent season, but he's a long way removed from the John Klingberg who you would look at and say, hey, that guy has a lot of points for Dallas and he's playing a lot of minutes. His last like, That was a while ago. Yeah, <laughs> his last four full seasons have had really, really awful defensive results. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't watch enough. I haven't watched enough of Klingberg, especially like the the decrepit version of Klingberg that we appear to have seen in the last few years to know exactly why that is. Mm -hmm. But the numbers are pretty horrific here and they seem to match with the eye test. Like no, the thing is no one is really saying, Oh no, he's actually good defensively the way that you see for a lot of players. Right. Even in when he was at his best, Klingberg was dinged for his perceived defensive weakness. And Mm -hmm. now it just looks like he has gotten worse in both areas. Yeah, so there's a lot there that is kind of concerning. Upside, um, no term risk, Mm -hmm. so that's good. Um, This was a bit of a weird season in that everyone anticipates the cap is going to go up meaningfully next season. And so there are a lot of players who are taking one-year deals in the hope of cashing in next year, which will be interesting if they all flood the market. That might actually not work out for a lot of them. But uh, it led to some one-year deals for players you would expect to get term. And even if that situation fell into Trilliving's lap a little bit, still, you can only take advantage of the opportunities in front of you. And mm-hmm. he did so. So if this is a complete washout, it's not like a long-term fatal error. It still means that we've wasted some cap and a roster spot and some time playing a secondary defenseman in a year we're trying to contend, which mm-hmm. would suck. But it's not like it's going to cripple the franchise if it goes wrong. Right. Um I think, I think that's fair. And again, Klingberg does have some upside. The Leafs do not have a very dynamic defense group. It, it's, it's been, it's transitioned more to a solid kind of static, not a uh, static, not the right word for it, but a, a very dependable defense group with a bunch of guys who can execute reasonably well, but will not necessarily excel on their own in terms of breaking opposing structure. Klingberg can possibly do that. And maybe they think there's some nice synergy to be found with how he can play in the offensive zone and the Leafs' offensive system, playing him with some really, really talented players, maybe some of the most talented forwards he's played with in a while. Uh, maybe they think they can use some of the skills of his that he still possesses, because he still has you know, a great first pass. He can still move the puck with his feet a little bit. He still has good offensive instincts. So, yeah, maybe, maybe they think he'll be better in this particular situation than he, he, had, he, he was in, in other ones. The Leafs also have, you know, good defensive players around him to hopefully insulate him. We're now saying this for a handful of players, right? Yeah. We'll be saying this again for, for Max Domi and to some extent for Tyler Bertuzzi as well. Um, and at a certain point, it's like, well, you know, 
if you kind of ship a theseist your way into getting rid of all your good defensive players and importing one-way <laughs> offensive players there, you can no longer really say that. But, yeah. you know, for the moment, it's still true, right? Matthews and Marner are very, very good defensively. Tavares is probably average, maybe slightly below average. Uh, you know, the if you play Klingberg with someone like McCabe, then that's a defense partner who has some real defensive skill. So... Mm-hmm. There's ways you can talk yourself into it. I think this is more likely to fail than to succeed. Um, I hope the Leafs are willing to cut bait on it if it is not working out well. Um, and this isn't my favorite signing, but it's also not my least favorite. Yeah. Uh, one parting note. He does have a modified no-trade clause. So he can block 10 teams. I don't know what the submission date is for that. But yeah, apparently he has some capacity to control his destination if it comes to that. Let's hope it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um. Next up, Tyler Bertuzzi, one year at $5.5 million. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, no doubt about it, a very good deal for the Leafs. And we spent a lot of time, you know, we're an hour in, we've talked about a bunch of deals, and I think we were not unequivocally happy with any of them. Uh, we This on the ice, again, is an unequivocally good deal, and it is probably more important than any of the deals that were signed previous to this. Yeah, this is the big one. Like, I... After a few deals that I was kind of iffy on, I was getting kind of skeptical of Brad Treliving in his first year as GM. This is a win on ice pretty much any way you slice it. If you think that what the Leafs have been missing these past few years is grit and offense and a willingness to go to the dirty areas to get goals, Tyler Bertuzzi is your Prince Charming um, with a gap in his teeth. God bless him. He's a tough competitor. He's coming off a strong playoff appearance for the Bruins who traded for him in season. He put up 10 points in seven games. Uh, Let's all take a moment to remember that the Bruins lost in round one. Wasn't that nice? All right. And he has, you know, soft hands close to the net. And I think that he fits really well. He is probably going to play with Austin Matthews. I would guess. I would imagine Um, that's probably why he signed with the Leafs, right? Like, I... Yeah. I mean, you know, people aren't held to this, I suppose, but it would not shock me if, like, him or his agent asked during negotiating with the Leafs, like, what role do you have in mind for him? And they said, you will be on one of our top two lines. You will play with two of, you know, Mitch Marner, Austin Matthews, John Tavares, and William Nylander for about 100% of your minutes. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, yeah, like, he stands to make himself some money next year. Yeah, like, this is another clear example of the cap environment leading to a one-year deal for a player who almost certainly could have gotten term and who allegedly was trying to at one point in his free agency before settling on this. The thing about like really good power forward types and free agency is everybody wants them. So they tend to get overpaid and they get too much term. And then they get these deals that go south two or three or four years in. Milan Lucic is a classic example, but there have been plenty. That is not a risk here. Sorry? Matt Bolesky, just to yeah, pull Yeah, there's another one. David yeah. Clarkson. So, yeah, oh, God, help me. Yeah, and again, those are all things that would concern me if we gave him seven years. We gave him one, so it really doesn't matter. Um, now, the next deal he signs, who knows? But uh, that's not our problem right now. Um, I do think that he is a really nice fit, and he adds some things that I think the Leafs did need to add. A um, couple of caveats. He's missed time in the past with a busted wrist and a back injury and a commitment to not getting vaccinated. So hopefully he doesn't give the whole team measles, I guess. Um, 
One note of caution. Michael Bunting's career high in points, 63, is actually higher than Bertuzzi's, which was 62. Neither of them broke 50 points in any other year of their careers. Now, a lot of this is simply because Bertuzzi was not as available as Bunting, but I don't think you can necessarily count on 82 game availability from Bertuzzi, mm-hmm. whereas Bunting's injury risk is that he's going to run his mouth too hard and strain his tongue. So a little bit of a note of caution there. Having said that, I think Bertuzzi is a better player and the Leafs can afford to be a little bit patient as long as he's there in the playoffs. Um, yeah, he's he's been reported to struggle a little bit defensively. His defensive impacts are fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not super worried about giving back a little bit on defense for this kind of offensive player. No, I, I agree. And I think you initially start off with Matthews, Marner, and Bertuzzi. Mm-hmm. And I would hope that that is one of the best lines in hockey. Like, genuine, yeah. like that should be a top five line in hockey. And, uh, if it's not, the Leafs have some problems, really, because, like, we kind of need... Um, if we're going to group Matthews and Marner together, that needs to be a top five line in the, in the sport. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, like, th- there's no reason to think it, it doesn't have that potential. So I think that's probably where the Leafs start off and, and, and they go from there. Uh, again, so I, we talked about with Reeves, uh, you know, the, the toughness that the toughness trap on this team of the Leafs have had toughness in their bottom six before. And to the extent that you think toughness is responsible for the Leafs not making it out of the second round and not having a truly deep playoff run to, um, you know, show their wares, I think it probably has more to do with the toughness of their top players than anything else. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, look, if there's a part of, of people that believe that Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner just doesn't have it, Mm-hmm. Like they're just never going to win, then then we're screwed no matter what. But yeah. this at least seems like a more plausible way to inject some snot, some toughness into the higher ends of the lineup. Yeah, and and help out there if you think that that is an issue, which Trilliving clearly does. Yeah, and you know it's it's along with him being a good player is the biggest thing, and it's um it's a compliment to his other skills. It's part of what makes him a good player. So yeah, I, I mean. This is unequivocally uh, a good signing from an on-ice value perspective. I'm not saying there's no chance it goes wrong. Hockey is a crazy sport. But, like, this is about as good a bet as you can make. Mm-hmm. Um, next up, Max Domi. One year at $3 million. So, as everyone knows, he's the son of Ty Domi, who was the Leafs enforcer back in the Sundin era. Um, Max is a very different player. He's actually much more skillful than his dad was. Um... He's aggressive, but he's not a brawler. He's listed at 5'10". I doubt it, to be honest with you. He does not seem like he's 5'10", but what do I know? Um, He's pretty belligerent, but he makes his living as a playmaking forward. Um, He peaked with a 28-goal, 44-assist, 72-point season for the Montreal Canadiens in 1819. Uh, The Leafs will be his seventh team since entering the NHL. And, you know, a lot of that is circumstance, but that is a lot of moving around for a guy who's only 28. Um, He's very vocal. He's like a yippy little dog in terms of his personality on the ice. And he's been outspoken off it, um, which we'll, we'll mention a little further down. He's one of those players who bounces between center and wing. He played a lot of it in Chicago this past season before being traded to the stars at the deadline. But Chicago, if you saw last year had like almost no one else to play instead of him. Like, Jonathan Taze was the other center, and then it was just, like, whoever. 
So he played a lot of time with Patrick Kane. And Domi has the distinction of finishing as the team's leading scorer with 49 points. Um, again, that's sort of <laughs> a dubious distinction because of how bad the Hawks were, but it's a fact. Um, still, he doesn't seem to be trusted at center very well. His defensive results have always been pretty bad through a lot of situations. Yeah, at, at this point, there's been so many teams that he's been on and so many coaches and he's been bad defensively by the stats at every single one of these stops. Yeah. So at some point, you're just like, okay, yeah, you know, he's he's not good defensively. It is sort of interesting. His goals against numbers are actually always, not always, but often better than his expected goals against numbers. Which is and, good. <laughs> which <laughs> is needs good. To help. But also, yeah. like, not at all what you would expect for a player of his type. Like, I don't even really see the mechanism by which he somehow reduces. He, he makes you know, shots that seem good to XG models worse when he's on the ice yeah. uh, from a defensive point of view. So that could just be a statistical oddity. It could be that he plays against like some, some weaker finishers because coaches don't really match him up against top lines. I took a quick look at some of his competition over the past few years, and it's not it's not super skewed in one direction or the other. Like he, he plays against some top six players, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's something to keep an eye on. My guess is that it's a sort of a null effect and he's not doing a heck of a lot to really account for that maybe it's just that like he's in his own zone a lot and like there's just a lot of bodies in front of the net and things like that and that just leads to less goals he or something like that um but anyways you do not acquire max domi for this reason you acquire him because he's a genuinely excellent playmaker he's one of Mm -hmm. actually the better setup guys in the league he has a history of driving goals above expected goals and that i actually do believe is um is to his own credit and to is part of his skill set as a premier passer. So I think that's, you know, that's the reason that you acquire him. Uh, he has genuine skill and talent for passing the puck, and he'll be useful offensively for a team like the Leafs who really need secondary scoring. Yeah, I, like I would come to the conclusion of he's a good offensive player. He's adding to a team that needs some more secondary offense. Um, he does need somebody to pass to. To some extent. So we'll see how they choose to use him. I don't really trust him as a center. If, if you're playing David Camp on a, on a third line, you don't exactly want to play, pair Max Domi with him. Yeah, like that's a bit of an iffy combination. Now again, maybe you can see it working out, I guess theoretically, but it does seem like it's a bit of an oil and water thing. Um, still, one year at $3 million, again... Not a ton of downside risk on the contract. If it doesn't work out, they can cut bait. Um, And again, you know, I've been banging the drum that they need more offense. Well, Domi was one of the ways to acquire that in free agency without making a really regrettable ad um, in terms of contract situation. Now, let's be real here. A lot of people do not like the Max Domi signing. And it's not for reasons necessarily related to his on-ice performance. But the same could also be said for, for Tyler Bertuzzi, by the way, given sort of the yeah. uh, relationship that being fervently anti-vax has with other conspiracy theorists and, and you know, other likely opinions. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that gives people a lot of pause. I think I, being anti-vax is stupid in and of itself. Yeah, and, it, it's, but, and, yeah. It's, and hugely damaging to society in of itself, right? Yeah, like, even like, if it's not paired with other fringe uh conspiracy opinions yeah so all right like let's get into it then domi is a trump supporter 
Um, he made some comments after a violent incident in Alberta that were, and I quote, really hope everyone in Edmonton is okay. We're behind you. This is why we have to be aware of some of the people we let into our country. Um, that in context with his sort of history of Trump support made people wonder how he feels about immigrants in general or his various opinions. So you can sort of put two things together on this one. On the one hand, if you told me to guess the political leanings of a group of North American males who are mostly white, mostly 99th percentile for personal income, and mostly haven't been to college, I would guess most of them are Republican. There's no way he's the only one on the Leafs. There are a ton of them around. A lot of people will say, look, I'm cheering for a hockey team. I don't really give a shit what he thinks off the ice. Probably lots of my favorite players have some private viewpoint I don't care very much about. What's like, why is this something that I should care about at all? And I've seen that position put forward. I will also give Domi some credit. He's participated in pride events and he seems to have done so with a level of sincerity that impressed people. That's to his credit. Um, but on the other hand, it's a sports team. You know, it's a connection to a random group of strangers because they sort of represent your city. Well, Toronto is a city of immigrants. And like, if you feel like it doesn't connect you to the team as well, because Max Domi has said some things that make you think he's an asshole, then that's your right. Like, I don't blame anyone who's mad about this. Right. I mean, sports are inherently like this sort of parasocial thing. Yeah. Right. Where and, we care yeah. a lot about a set of people who don't necessarily have any through lines to the city, but besides just wearing a specific piece of laundry. Mm -hmm. And someone's connection to the team can be based on that. It can be based on a particular player. It can be based on how they perceive the organization to fit in within the community. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, if someone feels that an organization does not reflect that the, the, the virtues or the qualities that they want to associate themselves with or that they associate their city with or their, their geographic area with, that's fine as well. I think people can make a decision based on that. You know, like I, I don't, I don't blame anyone who wants to check out of being a, as fervent a Leafs fan or a Leafs fan at all. If they don't particularly like the players, right? Mm -hmm. Like that ultimately that's who you're rooting for. Those are the people on the ice. Um, if you don't like the idea of being represented in some way by someone like Max Domi, then I think that is completely fine. And you're, it's completely fair to say, you know what? Not for me. Yeah. And so that's that's up to you. Like, I will put all my cards on the table. I don't like Max Domi. I have said mean things about him on Twitter, and he has blocked me. I actually can't blame him for blocking me. But I, yeah, like, it's hard for me to get, like, unabashedly excited about this signing. Um, I get the logic behind it. From <laughs> an on-ice perspective, there it makes a certain amount of sense. It's not risk-free. Um, you know, his defensive frailties are probably real. He's going to have to be used in a particular way. The Leafs do have some time to figure that out. But on a team that needed offense, he does provide some more offense. Uh, I guess is where it ends on that score. But, you know, feel how you got to feel about it. And, if you know, I've seen some people say, like, look, I'm not going to cheer for the Leafs this year. And that's up to you. So. All right. Um, now for the biggest signing of the offseason. Dylan Gambrell, one year at 775000 Um I'm not going to belabor this too much, but he's another name in the fourth line mix. He might push Pontus Holmberg for the 4C job, as he's the somewhat 
slightly more veteran choice. He's 26. But he doesn't have great face-off numbers, which are often the calling card for that job. He's 46% career. So if he wins a training camp battle, he could be a fourth liner. If not, he goes to the Marlies and makes NHL money there. You know, sort of the same position that Adam Gadette was in at this time last year. Yep. Nothing really to say about uh, about Gambrell. He, he is just a guy. He is just a guy. All right. So let's get to the big question. Is this team better? And I think you have to start by saying, okay, better than when? Because are they better than the team that appeared in the playoffs? Well, I don't think so, because Bunting, O'Reilly, Achari, Kerfoot, Chen out is probably more of a loss than the gains that have come in. And Hall. And Hall, yeah. <laughs> Hall was forgotten. But yeah, Hall is, a, is part of that list too. But in fairness to Treliving, you can't really expect him to match this the status of a roster that was built for the playoffs um, first thing in the summer. He has time to add at the deadline and to hopefully make that team better. Um, was it is it better than it was a year ago? I think it's pretty close. Yeah, I, I think it could go either way. Also worth noting that um, you know the, the structure of the salary cap is such that teams are always going to be a little bit worse. Good teams are always going to be, be a little bit worse. Not always, but will often be a little bit worse uh, when viewed in the summer compared yeah. to, to what they were, you know, at the end of last year, because the good players that they had that were underperforming or that were overperforming their deals are now gone and they couldn't afford to retain them and all that sort of stuff. Like there, there's a natural, you know, plexiglass uh, effect to to this. So I, I don't think the Leafs have had a disastrous free agency by any sense. Like I, it started off real rocky, um, mm-hmm. but the Bertuzzi acquisition in particular helped them out a lot. And then Domi, you know, makes some sense as, as a short-term flyer as well. I agree with you. I think it's relatively close to how they were at the start of last year. Um, worth noting, the Leafs are currently not cap compliant. No. And, you know, that is something that you do have to do at some point. Right. So, and, and even if they LTIR Jake Muzzin and get rid of Matt Murray for absolutely nothing, um, they will not be able to re-sign Ilya Samsonov uh, like for, for what he's going to ask and what he may get in arbitration. Yeah, uh, worth noting, uh, because Samsonov filed for arbitration, that should open a second buyout window that they can use on Murray. Um, I'm sure they would rather dispose of him in another fashion if they could, um, you know, tie a draft pick to him and then get rid of him entirely. But if they decide that the price has become too high in the market to do that and they don't think they can permanently LTIR him uh, in a productive way, then they do have the buyout option down the line. So we'll expect to see some movement there. They're not cap compliant, but if they can unload Murray, they're not far off. Right. Either. The one thing I want to say, though, is I've seen some people argue like, okay, well, you know, Treliving has talked about needing to get rid of another defenseman or needing to change up the defense more. So there might be another move coming there. Mm-hmm. And for some reason that is weird and unknown to me people have said oh maybe he'll trade tj brody no (laughs) don't no don't do that yeah like if this defense is good and i buy that it is brody is like one of the hugest factors in it being good and now that you're trying to run presumably riley and klingberg you need someone to be a defensive conscience on probably both of their pairings brody is the guy who does it for riley yeah, we've added a bunch of, like, one-way offensive players, and yeah, now we're going to trade our best defender? What yeah. the fuck? 
Because I guess he's not some people's idea of like the physical guy, but I'm like, he's really good defensively. He has one of the best sticks in the NHL on defensive plays. Like, add more toughness on defense if you think it's warranted. Do not do it at the expense of TJ Brown. Right. And I saw people say, oh, he had a tough playoffs. It's like, I, I mean, I think they, they fished the puck out of their own net a lot. I don't think Brody looked particularly awful. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I don't know. My, my memory of the playoffs is like a little foggy at this point, honestly. <laughs> We've repressed it, so. <laughs> yes. But even if he had a bad playoffs, and even if you think, yeah. oh, Brody's never going to succeed in the playoffs, which again, I kind of question because lots of defensemen of many various types have succeeded in the playoffs. And the one, you know, commonality I can seem to find with them is that they were also good in the regular season, generally speaking. Yeah. Even if that's the case, and you think, oh, you know, if we play Brody in the playoffs, we're screwed. If we don't have Brody, our chance of making the playoffs goes way down. Like, he's that important to this team. He's the yeah. one guy on this team who you can say is, like, a top pair guy. I don't mm-hmm. think he's, like, one of the 30 best defensemen in the league. But he's uh, one of the 60 best, for sure. And, sorry, I, I, a top pair guy in terms of his play driving at 5-on-5. Five five. Yeah. Riley can be perceived as a top pair guy, but a lot of it is due to his offense, his his ability to to play make and some power play ability. Brody's value is largely five on five. And I think he's the least best five on five defenseman. Yeah. So let's keep him, I guess is something that I would emphasize. Um, there are ways to sort of tinker around the edges of the roster. If that becomes necessary, like you have these contracts like Connor Timmons yeah. and um, Sam Lafferty, which are like, trivial but they can also probably shave a couple hundred thousand dollars here and there if you really feel like you need to do that again i don't expect that this cap crunch is going to drive any major changes to the roster because you know murray and muzzin i'm assuming are gonzo one way or another but yeah so there there might be some work around the edges um obviously overhanging all this are the extensions for austin matthews and william nylander the chatter is that Austin Matthews is going to resign. It's just a, a question of how much is it going to cost. Matthews has shown a willingness to maximize his career earnings. So we might be looking at like a four or five year deal with a really big AAV um, that subsequently uh, is followed up with another big deal around age 30 for him. Um, and ultimately like, I would love the Leafs to capture some value here and, you know, go to him on bended knee and say, look, we're trying to compete with the best teams in the league, all of whom are paying their stars less than this. Please give us a break here. But ultimately, if he says no, pay me, um, the Leafs are probably going to do it. Yeah, he actually does have all the cards in this situation because you really cannot replace Austin Matthews whatsoever. Austin Matthews was the reason... (laughs) The reason we did the tanking, yeah. you know, it, it, it against the odds, it worked. And mm-hmm. not only did the Leafs end up doing a full-scale tank in a year with a bona fide, you know, elite prospect, but they hit the trifecta of, you know, getting the number one pick, that number one pick, you know, being an elite prospect, and then that prospect probably hitting like his 95th percentile outcome and being yeah. one of the very best players in the league. Yeah, well, I mean, he's the first Leaf to win the Hart Trophy in, what was it, 70 years? Um, Teeter Kennedy, I know, was the last one. And it's like, even if you're saying, okay, but then the next year he fell back a bit because his shooting became ordinary, that is a real concern. But here's the thing. 
the Leafs have never had anyone who was even clearly the second best player in the NHL since expansion. Matt Sundin was probably fringe top five at his peak. It's just so damn hard to and, get those players. And you look at the guys who have come up, uh, who have entered the league since Matthews, even at the very top, top end of the draft. Mm-hmm. The only comparable guy that I can think of right now who's like at a similar level to Matthews or can get there is Jack Hughes. Yeah, and even then, I don't think Jack Hughes is better than Austin Matthews now. It's just that he might do it. Um, He's also getting paid like $8 million or whatever. Yeah, and that's always going to be the trick, right? Um, the Devils are going to be dining out on that extension for a while. That deal is going to look brilliant. They took like a very modest risk, and it's mm. going to pay out huge for them. Anyway, so it comes down to we expect Matthews to sign, which is good for the long-term contending to the team. It's fraught with some risk if he goes back to merely very very good there's going to be some excess value there but they really can't replace him uh the Nylander thing is a bit more open Nylander is you know certainly interested in possibly staying and the Leafs are interested in possibly keeping him but there is apparently a discrepancy in the numbers right now that's how negotiations work but it may not get bridged and I suspect the Leafs will keep Nylander for the season if it comes to that and risk him walking. Um, it's a little bit complicated by Treliving's history in Calgary where Gaudreau wound up walking and they lost him for nothing. But the Leafs are trying to contend this year. Right. Like, what's and, the trade where they're still as good? Yeah, without? they're not a contender without William Nylander. <laughs> no, they're a good team. They're a playoff team. But they they fall away from the top tier because I assume any trade that you make, you're getting someone who is less helpful in the present tense. Um, you can still win a Nylander trade potentially down the line, but on the timeline this team is on, yeah. Um, I hope, you know, they're able to come to some sort of reasonable agreement. Unlike Matthews, Nylander is not the kind of player where you don't have a walkaway number. Mm -hmm. There is an upper limit. You can debate what it is. I feel like a good deal for him would be like term at 8.8. Um... You know, if you really put a gun to my head and it went into the nines, I'd probably end up doing it, but I don't go forever. So we'll see. Oh, okay. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's where we're at in terms of recapping the Leafs off seasons for the first two weeks. Yep. I, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this reunion tour. <laughs> we may be back later in the off season with some other league stuff, but it'll be it'll be sporadic, and we'll we'll just. We'll let people know as as the mood strikes. So thank you all for for listening. Uh, We'll catch up with you soon.